0: Legal writing would do well simply to emulate what one reads in a really well-edited newspaper.
1: It's simple, it's precise, it's readable. And that's the hardest part to teach, is uh, teaching people to look at their own writing as if they were strangers, to see their own writing as seen by other people. If you can learn that skill, you can become an excellent writer.
3: Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California, write a blog called May It Please the Court. And before we introduce today's topic, let me take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management uh, platform for lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. Well, Bob, we're going to be taking a different tack on today's show. We spotted
4: a a video interview done by Brian Garner, who's the editor-in-chief of Black's Law Dictionary, with Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. During their interview, Justice Kagan discussed the importance of writing, especially for young lawyers, and how it may not be given the attention that it needs to be in law schools today.
3: So today we're going to talk more about uh, teaching writing to law students and young lawyers and the writing skills that young lawyers need. And to help us do that, we have two esteemed guests with us today. First off, uh, let me welcome a returning guest to the program, Judge Alex Kaczynski, who sits on the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, where he has served since his appointment there in 1985 by President Ronald Reagan, uh, prior to... Going to the Ninth Circuit, uh, Judge Kuczynski had been Chief Judge of the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, uh, and uh, earlier in his career was Special Counsel to the U.S. Merit Systems Protection Board, Assistant Counsel in the Office of the Counsel to President Reagan, and a law clerk for both Justice Warren Burger on the Supreme Court and for Judge Anthony Kennedy when Judge Kennedy was on the Ninth Circuit. So, welcome, Alex Kozinski, to Lawyer to Lawyer.
4: Good to be back.
3: Well, it's good to have
4: you back. And uh, Bob, in addition, we would like to welcome for the first time Judge Richard Kopf, who sits on the U.S. District Court for the District of Nebraska, where he's been since his nomination by President George H.W. Bush and its subsequent confirmation by the Senate in 1992. Since that time, he's been a member of the Committee on Codes of Conduct, the Judicial Conference of the United States, and the chief judge for the District of Nebraska. Judge Kopp is also known for his authorship of the blog Hercules and the Umpire, which we might talk to him about in the context of legal writing. Welcome to the show,
3: Judge Kopp. Thank you. Well, uh, Justice Kagan, in her interview with Brian Garner, said that she thinks that American law schools, uh, including even those in the top tier, need to think in a deep way about how to help their students become better writers. Uh, I'd like to just start off this interview by asking both of you uh, to size it up from what you, where you sit. What is your opinion of, of the quality of legal writing that you're seeing coming out of law schools today among younger lawyers? And, and how has it changed over the course of your careers, whether for better or for worse? Judge Kaczynsko, start with you.
1: It varies. I get very few, uh, I've gotten very few writers who I thought were really excellent writers right out of the box. But they're smart and they learn fast. Going to law school, I think, tends to stilt one's writing. Uh, You read all those appellate cases written by appellate, and many of them are sort of prolix, badly edited, not really... uh, you know, not really good reading, and I think uh, law students get the idea that that's how writing is supposed to be. I also think that people come out of law school nowadays having read less, and I think uh, one path to good writing is doing a lot of reading. And I think uh, over the past few years, I've think I've noticed a decrease in the amount of reading that uh, law clerks have done.
3: Judge Koff, what about you? From your, from where you sit as, as a trial judge, what have you seen? Uh, what's your perspective on, on the quality of the writing that you're seeing coming out of law school and among young lawyers?
0: Uh, someone said that legal writing is to writing as military music is to music. And I think that's largely true. When Justice Scalia was given the American Society of Legal Writers Lifetime Achievement Award, he said that he didn't believed that there was such a thing as legal writing. He thought there was only writing, and um, I think that's particularly responsive to the point that Judge Kaczynski has made. I think it's uh, legal writing, if you want to set that off as a category, would do well simply to emulate what... Uh, maybe what one reads in in uh, a really well edited newspaper. It's uh, simple. It's precise. It's readable, and so that's my initial thought.
4: Judge Kaczynski, what what do you find is the most annoying aspects of the writing that you see in the briefs that come in front of you? There's a there's a famous quip about a judge ordering lawyers to. Uh, file their briefs and crayons couldn't get along. Do you find that that's a, a common thing?
1: Well, that particular judge is no longer on the bench, if I remember correctly. But um, I don't think it's as bad as all that. I think lawyers are busy and uh, they tend to view brief writing as sort of uh, one of those things that can be put off and put off. And so they send in briefs that are less polished, and less edited than they should be. And uh, I think the deeper you staff a case, uh, I mean, if you have a big law firm with uh, lots of lawyers on the case, you can afford to go through a number of drafts and polish and cut your brief and edit it down to where it should be or, uh, you know, to avoid repetitive or prolix matters. I think a lot of lawyers just don't have the, uh, you know, the, the cases can't be staffed that deeply. And so you have one lawyer working on the case. It could be a uh, uh, a public defender, it could be a lone um, criminal practitioner, it could be even you know lone immigration lawyer. And um, it's very hard to write a really good, polished piece of work without uh, without help. Uh, I don't do it. You know, uh, I consider myself a reasonably good writer, but I have lots of help. I have lots of uh, law clerks who. Uh, look at my work and uh I have the time to self edit and I have the time to uh edit their work and, and vice versa. And um I think a lot of lawyers if they if they had more time or if they had sort of bigger better paying clients would write better briefs. But you know, not not every client can afford uh the best brief. So um I don't think it's necessarily a a failing of the lawyers. I think uh, sometimes um, writing a you know excellent brief just isn't economically feasible. You know, we live with that. It's it's part of what what we do. We, you know with the clients you better serve with a better brief. Yes, uh, but you know it's just like everything else. Uh, if you if you if you can't afford a law firm with uh, six people staffing a case. Yeah, and very few people can do that. Uh, then, then uh, you know, you're, you're going to have to get something that's less than perfect. Yeah, but you know, we work around that. We take the briefs as a as a starting point for the cases, and we do our own research and we second guess and we. Um, so, so you know, we we take account of that.
3: On that topic of briefs, Judge Koppa, when you were writing your blog, you you did a a post. Uh on your blog in which you praised an article by uh, California U.S. District Judge Andrew Guilford uh kind of urge lawyers to rethink the way they use headings in their brief and, and to maybe rethink a little bit the rigid structure uh, of briefs, uh, maybe even suggesting it's time to drop Roman numerals <laughs> in briefs. Is there a, a function to the sort of rigid structure of briefs? Is, is it time for lawyers or, or courts to rethink the way briefs are written and presented to make them more readable, uh, more accessible to people who aren't lawyers or to the general public?
0: Well, Two things. Number one, I think uh, Andy's suggestion just made sense, but beyond that, at least at the district court level, and as Judge Kaczynski alluded, lawyers are under pressure, and unless they have large staffs, and particularly at the district court level, they're turning out briefs fairly rapidly. So rather than worrying about headings and subheadings and all that sort of thing, uh, let's take a motion for summary judgment. If you'll set the facts out for me in some reasonable fashion and give me the citation to the record where you find it and give me a short argument about why I ought to grant a summary judgment, that's about what I expect. Uh, I agree with Judge Kaczynski, we don't take those briefs, we do our own research, and we can do our own research, we can spend as much time as we reasonably need. What we're looking for is what the lawyer is really concerned about, and so rather than form, I would urge, uh, at least at the district court level, that the lawyer's concentrate on simplicity and directness. Tell me what the facts are, give me the site to the record, make your legal argument, and come to an end.
4: Yeah, the short version of what I've heard before from people who suggest what to do is tell me in the very first sentence why you're here and why you're entitled to the relief you're asking for.
0: Yeah, and it's surprising to me that uh, what a journalist say, don't bury the lead, The lead gets buried in virtually every brief I read. This is a motion for summary judgment. Well, okay, this is a motion for summary judgment limited to the issue of qualified immunity. That helps a little bit more. And the more you refine that first sentence or first couple of sentences, the more you're likely to catch the attention of one of my two career law clerks, and ultimately me.
3: I mean, unfortunately, simplicity and clarity in writing uh, is, not, is not necessarily an easy skill to come by. Uh, Judge Kaczynski, I, I wonder, you know, part of uh, Justice Kagan's uh, interview was talking about the difficulty of, of teaching this to law students, teaching good writing uh, to law students. Do you have any advice uh, for law schools who are trying to improve the writing skills of their students as to how they can do that?
1: Well, I have advice for Justice King, and she should hire more of my law clerks. Because <laughs> that's what I do. No, I'm serious. So this is what I do. They, uh, they are here. I, I, spend a lot of time teaching, teaching them how to write.
3: Well, but this is something that pervades the profession. It's not just the the law clerks that we're worried about here, but writing skills at lawyers at all levels and wherever their practices are.
1: You know. I'm not a big advocate of you know diverting people from law school to uh, to a lot of clinical courses or uh, learning how to do trials or learning how to write and all that. Uh, I think three years in law school is not long enough to learn all the subjects you need to know substantively. So I, I'm I'm not a big advocate of using law school uh, sort of giving up substantive courses that they really w- will need in practice uh, to learn how to write. You know you learn how to write by writing and by doing it. And by getting um, someone who's getting a good mentor to um, take your work apart i, I had a good mentor when I, I went to uh, my law firm I, uh there was a partner there who used to do to my writing what I do to my law clerk's writing and um, I think I'd write something pretty perfect, and he would just mark it all up and just uh, it looked like a bunch of chicken scratchings and uh, but when you sort of typed it up and you know input all his changes, it was much better. So I, I think mentoring uh, helps a lot. But basically what people need to do is sit down and write.
3: Should law firms be doing more then when they hire lawyers out of law school? Should writing skills be something that they're uh, working uh, with their young associates uh, on?
1: I assume they are. I mean, I assume they are. I mean, the process, that's what happened to me when I, was, uh, when I went to a big law firm. When I went to law firm, I, you know, they, they didn't let me turn stuff in without somebody looking at it and making it better. But I, um, you know, I, I think what I do with my law clerks is uh, I have a bunch of short stories that I used to read uh, when I was in college, um, and I have found them and I printed them and I hand them out. To them, And I said, you know, read these short stories. They're fiction, but um, fiction short stories are very much like opinions. They, they you have to go in and out and tell a story and, uh, you know, don't waste any words. And then what you do is you just write and you become, uh, you know, I, I talk to them about how they have to sort of write with the reader in mind, the uh, not with, you know, themselves in mind. Uh, they have to read their own writing from the perspective of the reader. And then they have to edit, uh, go through draft after draft after draft after draft, looking for what's wrong with the thing they've already written. And that's the hardest part to teach, is uh, teaching people to look at their own writing as if they were strangers, to see their own writing as seen by other people. Uh, If you can learn that skill, you can can become an excellent writer.
3: We need to take a short break uh, at this point. We are going to be back uh, in just a few moments to talk more about legal writing with Judge Kaczynski and Judge Kopp.
2: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, President of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process?
4: No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes.
0: That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com.
4: Well, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams, and with us today is Judge Alex Kaczynski from the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and Judge Richard Kopp from the U.S. District Court in the District of Nevada. And before the break, we were talking about Judge Kaczynski's advice to some young lawyers on how to learn how to write. Judge Kopp, what do you tell young lawyers to do and, and lawyers in general to sharpen their writing?
0: In order to write well, I believe that you must read read good writing. Particular forms of writing that I find instructive are some of the classic essays, uh, vignettes, not unlike what Judge Kaczynski was saying about short stories. Again, it's also helpful to read well-edited, in my opinion, well-edited newspapers. It's surprising what you'll just pick up By osmosis, if you force yourself, as a matter of practice, to read really good newspapers, uh, several of them a day, and not just the headline, read some of the longer pieces, you'll begin to see things that will be helpful to you as you write.
3: Judge Kaczynski, the uh, old saw says that the uh, first rule of good writing is to know your audience. So when you're writing an appellate opinion, uh, who is the audience? Are you writing that for the litigants in the case or for the the general public or for the justices in the Supreme Court who may end up reviewing your opinion? Who are you writing for?
1: Uh, Well, it depends a lot actually on whether it's published or unpublished. If it's unpublished, then the writing is just to the parties, let him know we understood their case, and um, here's the result and a little bit of the reasoning. If I'm writing a published opinion, then you've got a lot of audiences, and you have to keep them all in mind. You've got the parties who already know the facts and uh, the legal arguments, but you're also writing for a lot of other people out there who don't know the facts and don't know the legal arguments, and you're writing for your colleagues who are going to be applying their opinion in future cases. You're writing for District judges, who are going to be applying it in future cases. Uh, you're writing for the lawyers in their offices who have clients who have to plan, and so they want to understand what the law is. So you have to give them enough information to um, make sense of the opinion, and you have to announce a rule of you know, sufficient generality so that it provides guidance uh, to all those people in the future. If you're writing in dissent, then, of course, you're writing, uh, hoping the Supreme Court will read it and uh, and take the case, or maybe s- uh, somebody will call it in bank. Uh, or sometimes you're writing dissent hoping that uh, judges and other courts will not follow the majority opinion. Uh, so there are a lot of audiences like that. Uh, or if, uh, if we write, for example, internal memos, in, like an in-bank call memo, that's a very different audience. Uh, that uh, audience consisted of my colleagues. So, Tell my law clerks: You got to think of who your audience is, and you're writing a very different kind of writing if it's an internal memo addressed to 28 other circuit judges and their staffs, and if you're writing for an opinion that's going to be read by dozens, hundreds, possibly thousands of people, not just today but for years to come. And if you're doing that, you have sort of a dual obligation. One obligation is to give them enough facts so they understand what you're doing and understand the rule of law, and also not to throw in extraneous facts, uh, because every fact you add to an opinion narrows it. It makes it a basis for somebody else's distinction in the future. It makes it a basis for somebody to say, well, to what extent is this additional fact? uh, Did that make a difference? So what I tell my law clerks is don't clutter it up with too many facts if the facts don't matter, if they don't add to the message of the opinion, what they're going to do is they're going to confuse somebody down the road. They're going to cause somebody to either uh, intentionally or unintentionally misread the opinion. So we go through and sort of expurgate anything there that doesn't uh, advance what we are trying to do with our opinion, which is to establish a clear law.
4: In California, there's a kind of a central clearinghouse, and I believe it's in the Judicial Council for uh, the publishing of opinions, where there's a another a lawyer that just simply goes through all the appellate opinions that get published before they get published, is the federal system like that? No, so it's simply what each judge writes.
1: First of all, you need a majority of a three-judge panel, and then the whole court looks at it uh, when it comes out in slip opinion, and there are petitions for a hearing, uh, which then get internally debated but it is not circulated uh, to anybody in particular. I think the federal circuit in, and maybe one or two other circuits will circulate draft opinions before they are filed to all the judges of the court, but I, I'm not exactly sure what this practice is in California or who this lawyer is or why, what he is looking for.
3: Well, I'd wonder whether uniformity is, is a good thing. Is that something we want? I mean, I think, Judge Kaczynski, you're kind of known for your uh, ability to write opinions, uh, to work humor uh, into your opinions and, and uh, you know, to perhaps break from the sort of standard judicial style a little bit uh in your writing, you you have, I think a unique style of of writing for a judge, and that's that's won you a lot of praise over the years. A lot of people appreciate your style of writing. i I would think that bringing some degree of your of yourself or your personality or something to your writing even as a judge would be a a good thing. Do you see it that way?
1: Well yes, I wasn't exactly sure what this person did. Was it somebody that looks for uniformity in style, or was it uh, some idea of uniformity in, in, in the law?
4: I understand it's a citation format and stylistic references and uh, the common references to the law. I, I don't know how broad it is, but I, I know that it's done because
3: I've heard some appellate judges talk about it. I know some of the legal publishers do that. I mean, even Thomson Reuters does, does some of that. Their editors go through and uh, clean up the opinions.
1: You know, they do a very little bit. Uh, we actually go through the softbound volumes and correct them and send letters before they get in the hardbound volumes. I've been doing this for decades, uh, where we see what they do. And So there are a few things they change, the citation forms and the like, but they don't change any. That's the witches or anything like that. They they don't do any kind of word edits. And I think I think they would get into some difficulty with the judges if they if they did that.
3: Judge Kopp, I wonder if I could ask you the same question I'd asked Judge Kaczynski a few minutes ago about your audience. About I mean, You're a trial judge, so it's going to be a little bit different. But when, when you're writing uh, uh, an opinion, uh, who are you writing for? Who are you thinking about as being your audience?
0: I have two. I have the parties and I have the Court of Appeals. <laughs> and I try to, uh, as a practical matter, the Court of Appeals doesn't much care what I think about the law. What the Court of Appeals needs is an absolutely straight-up recitation of the facts that I think are material to my disposition of whatever the matter is that might be considered by the Court of Appeals. And for the parties, they're entitled to some explanation of why I got from A to B. What I write is not precedential. And I, we, in my chambers, try to keep that constantly in mind. In some senses, we view cases as widgets are viewed on an assembly line. It is not our job, in my opinion, to try to write law review quality opinions, 8th Circuit quality opinions, nine Circuit quality opinions, or opinions one might read from the Supreme Court. We need to decide cases. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care what we write. Uh, We do. But the hydraulic pressure on us causes our audience to be much narrower, and uh, that causes a certain compression in how we write.
4: Judge Kaczynski, what, where do you think lawyers venture into Rule 11 territory when they write? Is it misrepresentation of law, facts? What, what gets a lawyer in the most trouble in their writing?
1: Well, first of all, Rule 11 kind of violations are, are rare to begin with, but uh, generally they deal with, with facts. I think we're pretty forgiving in terms of um, citing precedent. You know, unless somebody really sort of leaves out the nose and uh, knots or something out of a, out of a quote, you know, uh, we can read the cases, and if they really don't stand for the proposition that they're cited for, then the lawyer loses credibility. I don't think that, that's that much point of sanctioning them. But um, the, the two areas where, where you can have sanctions, where if they misrepresent facts or records, that's the kind of thing we can't check up on. And uh, if they do that, then, then that seems to be sanctionable. The, the other part is when they try to do something that to gain some sort of unfair advantage. Like, uh, for example, uh, we've seen situations where they might attack the judge, I mean, the the trial judge, the bank judge, the district judge, uh, sort of attacked multiple times and praise all sorts of... Uh, claims of uh, bias when there wasn't anything there. And then you get the feeling that, you know, th- this is somebody who's trying to use uh, unfair tactics to try to get at the judge uh, whose who's rulings they don't like. And, you know, it's a fine line uh, when somebody steps over, but uh, we have sanctioned people uh, over, over that kind of conduct. Uh, you know, uh, we don't like it when people uh, uh, stretch cases, but my view of that is uh, if you're a lawyer and you stretch a case... And I catch you at it, and, and I will. I'm not just going to go a lie on a case uh, because lawyer says that's what it stands for. I'm going to just you know, write an or opinion or, and, and cite that case without reading it. If the case looks promising and you know, seems to support the proposition or decided to support it one proposition, and then when I go to look at it, it, it you know, doesn't or does something completely different or something else or the opposite, then to me it seems to me that lawyer has just shot himself in the foot and the sanction is uh, will be in the fact that I won't you know, barely believe anything else he says.
3: Judge Koff, a lot of the cases that come into the federal courts uh, deal with very technical issues, uh, intellectual property issues, scientific issues, technology issues. Uh, do you have any uh, advice for lawyers who are uh, going into court in a case that, that does involve technical issues about how to approach those from a writing point of view. I mean, you you can't avoid, I guess, some of the the terminology. Uh, And I I suppose for lawyers, there's always a sort of a balancing act between uh, having to, uh, not wanting to be too, technical and not wanting to be too basic, I guess, uh, in, in addressing some of these issues, not wanting to talk up or not wanting to talk down, I guess, to to the judge or, or whoever that they're approaching this to. Do you have, uh, from your experience, any advice for lawyers on addressing those kinds of issues in their writing?
0: Yeah, I have real human beings read the brief before you submit it. Somebody <laughs> who doesn't know anything about patents, who doesn't know anything about copyrights, who doesn't know anything about some whiz-bang device. The substantive areas of the law aren't that difficult. You ought to be able to, you know, in my case, uh, if I can't explain it to my wife who's a trained as a journalist in a minute or so, then I need to rethink, about, uh, rethink how I articulate it. If I use some fancy word that you think I should know because you've spent in the last 30 years litigating patents you're just fooling yourself it's once again an audience question do not assume that I'm smart assume just the opposite assume that I read at about the same level that folks read newspapers
4: you know, it's interesting, Judge Kopp, that you say that, because as Bob is a former uh, newspaper editor, I'm a newspaper writer. We were told and encouraged
3: to write to the eighth grade level.
0: So well, it used to be the fourth fourth grade level, but I'm older than you. I uh, Maybe not Bob, but...
3: Justice Kagan says she writes for the readers of, a, was it The New Yorker, I think she said. <laughs> well,
0: I'm not in a position to um, <laughs> comment on that. Well, actually,
3: I am, but I won't. I was going to say, you are, but, uh, yeah.
4: Well, it looks like we just about reached the end of our program, and we'd like to take this time to invite our guests, Judge Alex Kaczynski and Judge Richard Koff, to share their final thoughts and their contact information, if if they'd like to, so that our listeners can reach out and perhaps discuss some of the more fine points of legal writing. Judge Kaczynski, let's start with you for your final thoughts.
1: Well, my final thought is, you know, writing is thinking. And oftentimes you develop your theory of the case by writing it out, and uh, you know it's, it's very important to have to go through that process. But then also to go uh, to to know when to sort of come in and cut back on, leave out the stuff that that is not persuasive. What I tell oh. my law clerks is. You have to be able to, if you're dealing with a case, you're writing an opinion, you've got to be able to sort of imagine that you've got, let's say you've got a a, a kid brother in college, and he comes in and he says, uh, well, what are you working on? And I said, of course, the answer is, well, I can't tell you, it's it's confidential, but let's say you could tell him. Are you able to explain it to him, somebody who's intelligent, who's uh, educated, but not uh, expert, are you able to explain to this person in plain English what it is you're doing? If you can't do it, then you don't understand the case and you have to go back and rethink what you're doing.
4: Great. And your contact information?
1: Yeah, they can write to me at, at com.
4: Wonderful. Judge Kopp, your final thoughts and contact information if you'd like?
0: My final thought uh, is actually addressed to Judge Kaczynski. I doubt he'll remember this, but when he was chief judge of the claims court, I represented a little bank in Nebraska that was angry with the Farmers' Home Administration over what we thought was a violation of our financing statement. And I tried to get it into the local federal district court by dividing it up into a variety of claims. That didn't work, and it got transferred to uh, the judge's court. The judge was then kind enough to set the matter for oral argument on, on the government's motion for summary judgment, And the judge was kind enough to allow me to appear by telephone. Um, The argument proceeded. Uh, The government went first. After the judge was done questioning the government's lawyer, I knew I had won. And then the judge called upon me. And after he was done with me, I knew I had lost. (laughs) And indeed, I had. I got off the telephone that day, and I walked in to my senior partner's Uh, office and I said I just was engaged in the most intellectually challenging exercise of my life and that remains that one experience remains true anyone who has an opportunity to appear before the judge is in for an intellectual treat you can write me if you want to at richard underscore copf K-O-P as and Paul, F as in Frank, at N-E-D, as in NED, dot dot gov.
3: Well, Judge Koff, at least you didn't have to write a brief uh, for that case, so that's a good thing, I guess. Wow.
1: <laughs> thank you, by the way.
3: <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, both uh, Judge Kaczynski and Judge Koff, for taking the time to be with us today and to share your thoughts uh, about legal writing. We really appreciate you both taking the time. Thanks again. That brings us to the end of our show. This is Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi.
4: Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think
2: lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic.